Hey, good evening. It's good to see you all and be with you all. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, a little bit about redemption. We are at one church, and we have multiple congregations that meet in different areas throughout the valley, uh, as well as in Flagstaff. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So simply put, there was a man named Abraham Kuyper who said that there's not one square inch in the entire world uh, of which who Christ is, who alone is sovereign, does not cry out and say, mine. We believe that Jesus is in the work of redeeming all things, and therefore we seek to make disciples in response to that truth. If you want to learn more or know more about who we are as Redemption Church, best thing you could do is take the information card that's in the chair in front of you, fill out your name, your email address, any questions that you have regarding anything you hear or see today, uh, write that down, and later after the sermon, you have an opportunity to drop that off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors. Uh, We'd love to get back to you on that. Uh, One announcement I have is we have First Wednesdays coming up. First Wednesdays is a unique thing that we do here at Redemption Tempe um, that tackles the issues of faith and culture. How do we integrate our faith with the rest of life? And we have several topics that we've talked about um, this year already. This upcoming topic is going to be food and faith. So Jim Mullins is going to come and he's going to talk about conscious decisions about how we can grow food and how we can make food and eat food and buy food. It's going to be a lot about food. We're going to have food. It's going to be a lot of fun, right? And uh, there will be a panel here, and um, I know there's going to be three people. One for sure I know is a local professor at a, at a college here. She's a nutritionist. Uh, so another, another couple that owns a restaurant here. And I forgot who the third person is, but they're going to have a p- panel to facilitate some questions. And something unique that we've never done is we're going we're gonna to be in here for a moment, and then we're going to go outside. We're going to have chairs and tables set up because there will be food trucks here. Uh, paid for, so you can come and have good food. I um, can't remember the name of the organizations of the food trucks, but it's going to be good. And there's also going to be, get this, only in Tempe at this church, there's going to be a local farmer's market happening um, on that Tuesday night. So you can bring money to buy fresh produce and so forth. They told me, I don't know, they do it, we do it, only here, why not? I just think it's interesting that we're going to talk about um, conscious food decisions, and then we're going to walk out of here and they'll get some greasy food from a food truck, Right? Whatever, I think it'd be great in his name. We'll have a lot of fun, all right? If you have your Bible, meet me in Romans chapter 1. Um, we, we have some issues or some topics, I would say, that we're going to cover over the next two or three weeks that are, that are, that are going to be a lot of fun, maybe, right? Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand so someone can get you a copy of God's Word. Don't even forget that. Uh, keep it raised really high. If, if you don't own a copy, keep this copy as our gift to you. Um, You're going to be on page 611 if you're in the Bible that we're handing out, Romans chapter 1, week 3 of our series. Um, So far, Paul has just been talking about the gospel and how he loves these people in Rome and can't wait to, to see them even though he's never met them. He wants to share his life and the gospel with them. Last week we talked about God's righteousness, this, this foreign righteousness that God has given us that we are accepted, not by anything that we could ever do or didn't do, but because of the work of Christ. And then now Paul begins to talk about wrath. And, and so here's where we're going over the next three weeks, today and then two weeks after. We're going to talk about God's wrath today, and then the week after that, homosexuality, what Paul says about homosexuality, and then after that, our response as Christians uh, to homosexuality. And so um, wrath and homosexuality, those are not usually topics that when pastors get together and go, hey, what, what should we teach this year? You know, Hey, let's teach on his wrath, and then we'll teach on homosexuality. Yeah, people will love that, right? No, that's not usually what happens. However, we teach the books of the Bible, and one of the ways, reasons why we do that, it keeps us honest, and whatever the text says, we're, we're going to teach it. 
Now, before we get into the sermon tonight, uh, some of you, this may be your first time been in a church service and you're saying, listen, I don't really like going to church service. And your friend's like, no, you got to go. I really like my church. And, and, and uh, no, every time I go, there's always some guy up there. He's really angry. He's talking about condemnation and wrath. And you're like, your friend's like, no, 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 not our, not our church, right? And then you show up today, right? All right. So let me just tell you, one, that's on your friend, right? They knew we were teaching this and they should have read ahead. Maybe they did. Maybe they thought if anyone needs to hear this, it's you, right? So, so, um, we're thankful that you're here and with us, and and in all honesty, as Christians and non-Christians, this is the topic that we're just not comfortable with. We're not comfortable with, and so we ask for God's grace, we ask for God's presence, and His Holy Spirit to be with us as we look through these seven verses that Paul has for us as he communicates God's wrath. Now, as we walk through this, there's three things I want I want you to see that I, th- I believe Paul brings out for us. The first is the presence of God's wrath. Um, the second is the object of God's wrath. And then the third is the result of God's wrath. So the presence, uh, the, the object, and the result of God's wrath. Um, Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as you pause there for a second, we have to think, okay, Paul has been talking about the gospel, the good news, and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Why does he now, from verses 18, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, about verse 19, 20, just talk about bad news? So what, what Paul's going to do is saying, we're not connected to God, Jewish people aren't, Gentiles, anyone who's not a Christian, um, anyone who's a human, you're separated from God. And he spends all of his time over the next two and a half chapters saying, that. why does he start with talking about God's wrath? Well, let, me, let me explain this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, or excuse me, a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, a couple of years, 10 years ago, uh, a, a friend of mine, we were, we were playing football together, and he hurt himself, and he went to the trainer, went to the team doctor, and they told him it was an ab strain. So they gave him some ice and gave him some Motrin and said, get back on the field. But the next day, he came and goes, oh, I'm in some really bad pain. Like, oh, it's just an, just an ab strain. Gave him some ice and gave him some Motrin to get back on the field. Well, later that week, um, weekend, he went to the hospital. Um, he had lost, no joke, in eight days, 30 pounds. What they found out at Tippy St. Luke's here is it wasn't an ad string. He actually had sliced his kidney. Right? And I'm not a doctor, but I think that's more than an ab string, right? And, and they, they totally just misdiagnosed him. And therefore, the solution to their, their problem, what they thought was a problem, was ice and Motrin. When he needed surgery, he needed help. What, what Paul is saying here is, um, we have a bigger problem than what we think. And if we're going to have a solution, we have to have the proper diagnosis. He said our problem, is, it's worse than what you and I and what our culture naturally thinks, right? I, I think our culture is like our team trainers back then. It's like, hey, you know what? Your, your life, yeah, you're not perfect, but guess what? Nobody's perfect. And, and God, if there is a God... He's really not that upset with you. Like he's, he's okay with you because you're trying your hardest and you can continue to try your hardest. Just throw some ice on it and here's some Motrin and just live the rest of your life. But Paul goes, no, it's worse than that. This is not easy teaching by any means. But, but Paul is making it clear and the totality of scripture makes it clear. God is not okay with you. He, he, he's, he's just not okay with you. He's not looking at your life, and he's not looking at my life and going, ha, I'm okay with that. He's trying hard. Good job, man. Get out there. Try, try your hardest. When it comes to the vertical relationship of humanity and God, God's not just, we're not born into this world just being buddy buddies with God. 
Though we're created in his image and his likeness, though he loves us and he gives us good gifts, um, because of our sin, we are separated. And the Bible is clear. I can't stress this enough. God's not okay with us. And that, that, that's the scripture. So Paul's saying, that's a problem. Is that every single person in this room, every single person in this world, we are by nature and by choice sinners. And we are separated from God. We, that, that's, just, that's just the biblical teaching. And so Paul says, I have to start with wrath. I got to unpack it. I, I have to be honest with you. And so, so he begins to talk about the presence of this wrath. And, and, and some of us, it's hard because we go, wrath, I mean, what about the God of love? Let, 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 let's talk about the God of love. I mean, and most of us, when it comes to wrath, we, we don't have an understanding of wrath. Or what we think is, wasn't that God in the Old Testament? Is, isn't he done with that? Wasn't he kind of like ticked off back then? And like, now he's okay, right? Like the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath. But then when Jesus comes in the scene, it's all love. I mean, he's, he's hugging little children. He dies on the cross. It's pretty good, right? Um, what? Uh-oh. Dun, dun. Right? So don't worry about that. You guys can see me. There, 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 there's a point in when we read the Bible where we have to understand that God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. There was a loving God in the Old Testament and a God who had wrath in the Old Testament, and the same as the New Testament. What happens is when it comes to, to the teaching on God's wrath, what happens is you have some people who teach God's wrath at the exclusion of love. And we've heard people like that. You walk in and he's like, everyone's going to hell. You, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. Brother Jed, who's on campus right now at ASU, he's been there for a thousand years somehow. And he stands right there at the end. I'm like, how is this guy still here? And he's just like, you're going to hell. You're, I mean, it's just like, that's what we're used to hearing. It's like you with spaghetti straps. You too, you're going to hell. It's like, are you kidding me? And there, there's some people that are like that. And when they begin to speak, it's like, 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 they're the, like they speak as if I'm saved. And I don't know about the rest of you guys, right? And that's, that's, not, that's not good. You teach wrath at the exclusion of love, and there's no tears in your eyes. But on the flip side, equally as harmful and unbiblical is when you teach love at the exclusion of wrath. Because what happens is when we say things like, and we've all said it, um, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God, a loving God bring forth wrath? I think our, our problem sometimes is with the language, right? And not so much that the language is bad, it's our interpretation and understanding of it. Meaning the Bible speaks in what they call anthropomorphic language. It's, it's language that there's certain um, attributes that are ascribed to God that also are said about us. Like when the Bible talks about God being our father, we go, okay, so if I have a good dad, then okay, then God must be good. And if I've had a bad dad or an absent dad, then, then maybe God's bad or he's absent. And it's the same way with wrath. When we begin to think about God's wrath, we think about people in this world who are wrathful people. We've had parents like that. We've had bosses like that. We see moms like that. We see dads. We see people like that. And they're usually people who just at the flip of a switch, they just go crazy. And you know, and, and you know people like that? Like, hey, whatever you do, don't say this, this or that. Don't do it. Because they, they, just, they just snap. And so we think that's what God's wrath is like. But God's wrath is not like ours. And the same way that God's love is not like ours. When we talk about love, I mean, think about some of the silly things we do in the name of love. Some of the silly decisions we make in the name of love. That's not God. And neither is his wrath. God's wrath is not this, this irritable, irrational, self-indulgent, capricious, I'm just mad. Like God, doesn't, God is just not going to just flip the switch and go crazy. Like God doesn't one day go, all right, it's over. I'm going crazy now, right? Like that's, that's, not, that's not the God of the Bible. It's not. 
And when we say, but we want a God of love, maybe our understanding of love is not a biblical understanding of love. What I mean by that is our understanding of love usually can boil down to the word tolerant. Like, I just want to be tolerant. And we can be tolerant of things, but loving, loving people and loving things are different. You see, when you're tolerant of somebody or something, that means you're willing to put up with it. Like, ah, I'll put up with it. But when you love someone and when you love something, you're willing to die for that person. You're willing to lay your life down for that person. We tolerate different things. Some of us tolerate each other, but we may not love each other. I mean, I'm willing to die for you. That, those are different. And so sometimes when we hear love and wrath together, we think somehow they're, they're mutually exclusive and they're different, they're different departments, and, and they're not. In fact, when you read through the scripture, you can see that they're inextricably woven together. And even our own human experience would let us know that, 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 that love can't just be tolerant. Because wrapped up in the word of love is a sense of passion and of zeal, meaning when you care about something, you're going to do something. You, you love certain things, and so it makes you live. It makes you go. Tolerance doesn't do that. And, and, and tolerance is different than anger. In fact, I think um, Dorothy Sayers, she has a quote, and, and I think she gets this. In talking about tolerance and love, and she says this, In the world, it's not going to come up there. In the world, it is called tolerance. But in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. And then there's no passion. That's tolerance. When there's love, there's a passion. There's zeal. And there's, there's a care for a person. I mean, again, in our, our humans, we understand this intuitively. Think about people we love or things we love. Um, take an take a, a, a artist. If she paints a picture or makes a picture and goes through a lot of work getting the right materials that she's been waiting to have and she puts this, this great piece together um, and, and she puts it up for people to see and, and she may be okay with people looking at it and being like, I don't really like that. That may be fine, right? You may be looking at something and looking at the art and going, oh, oh, wait, that's a woman giving birth. Wow, I didn't see that coming, right? And it just, it just may be a picture, but she's okay with that. But what she's not okay if someone took something and began to defame it, began to take it down and break it, and it was no longer used for the purpose that it was intended by the creator to make. It's the same way with our friends. Because we love our friends, because we love our, our children, because we love our spouses, we hate drug abuse, we hate the alcohol abuse, we hate it. Because we love them. Because we love them. And again, to this, to this I think, uh, Becky Pippard and her, her book, Reason for Hope, she, she says this, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who has lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by the evil and implacably hostile to injustice. So when you love something you will move towards action. So when we have an, a proper understanding of who God is in his character, we understand, yes, God is love, and in his love and in his holiness and in his justice that he will, he, he will punish sin. He hates it. And so if you understand God's wrath, God's wrath is, is, is his calculated, it is his absolute hatred, hatred for sin. And Paul, when he begins in this letter and says the wrath of God in verse 18 is being revealed, this is serious talk. 
He says, for the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, we said this last week. When you read the word for, it's a connecting word. And what Paul is doing is he kind of has a juxtapose between verses 17 and verse 18. If you go back to verse 17 with me, it says, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That word revealed comes here, and it's good news. It's the gospel is revealing something about God. It's present tense. It's happening now. The presence of his grace. And then verse 18, he goes on and says, for the wrath of God is revealed. There's that same word, revealed. Meaning the presence of God's wrath is active now. Like, the Bible talks about some things God did in the Old Testament, yeah. And the Bible talks about judgment day, the final day, where God would um, pour out his wrath for those who wouldn't believe. But what Paul is saying now is um, his wrath is currently being revealed. That it hovers over our head, every single person, all of humanity. He goes on to say, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's saying he's talking to people. Who is it? Who 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 is it for? Like it's the presence of God's wrath. But what's the object of His wrath? It says the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Let me tell you this. He's talking of all humanity. His His wrath is present, and the object of His wrath is humanity. In fact, uh, a bigger picture would say anything that rebels against God. So that's demons and Satan's as well. But Paul's argument here is. Humanity is saying the ungodliness and unrighteousness. What that means is not only are you a sinner, but you're sinful. Meaning your behaviors, your attitudes, when they are outside of the will of God, outside of the character of God and what he has given to us to enjoy a life of delight and beauty, being in relationship with him. So last week, verse 17, is life in faith in Christ Jesus, one with him. Now, um, 18 all the way to 319 is life apart from God, not knowing Jesus, no faith, just living the life the way that we want to live. And Paul says, um, what happens is you become the object of God's wrath. And in that, in your living, you suppress the truth. To say to someone that suppresses the truth, that means you hinder the truth. It is taking the truth of God and putting it in a box and sitting on it. it, it what it does in that moment is you, you, you make the truth about God just nothing more than white noise in the backdrop of your life as you proceed to do whatever the heck you want to do. I mean, that, that's the picture that Paul's painting here, is that we suppress this truth. And this could, this could show itself in many ways. It could show itself in just outright disobedience. It could show its, its, its face in, in just rejection of who God is. It, it could show its, its face in, in some weird syncretism of both Christianity and something else, right? In the Old Testament, we saw this. When God's people came into the promised land, he warned them, do not intermingle with the Canaanites. He says, if you do, you're going to worship their gods. And what's going to happen is you're going to take the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and their gods are going to mingle together. And it's going to create something new. And it's going to be something different. It's not going to be the pure religion that God has given us um, through his character and himself. And that's what happened. And, and now, and in the era of grace, where we understand God's grace, there, there's something weird that's happening, I would say, just in Christians in general. And it's something called antinomianism. And what that means is antinomian, it just means anti-law. Meaning, if Christ came, and because Christ came, and he died on the cross for our sins, and, and you know, he's going to forgive us, then we can do what we want to do. I mean, I mean, there are many people who are saying, listen, I know the Bible has imperatives, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And who are you to tell me to do what God tells me to do? That's judging me. No, that's telling you to do what God told you to do. 
That's friendship. That's discipleship. That's love. And when you begin to take God's grace and do whatever you want to do, it no longer is true biblical Christianity. Paul, Paul says you're suppressing the truth. Like you're, you're holding it down. And then he proceeds here and says, here's what's, here's what's happening. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul is saying we are the objects of this wrath. And, and he used a rhetorical device here called an oxymoron. Um, in verse 20, it says, for his invisible attributes, meaning you can't see God. And then he goes further in verse 20 to say, um, but because of nature, have been clearly perceived. So what he's saying is we can't see God. Like we, we cannot see him. However, in his creation, he has revealed himself. And the things that he's made, he's revealed himself. What Paul is talking about here is what the theologians call general revelation. Um, there's a thing called general revelation, and there's something called special revelation. Um, um, what people would say is God, to reveal himself, has written two books. The book of the Bible, which is the prophets, the apostles, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's special revelation to know him in a saving way. And then there's also general revelation, and that is nature. So the book of the Bible and nature. There, there's truths to be found in nature. Any scientist would tell you this. Um, we can understand this, meaning all we have to do is walk outside and look at certain things and go, man, this screams of a creator. When we look at, when we look at the world around us, and so general revelation can be broken down into kind of three categories. It's creation, uh, common grace, and conscience. So again, creation is what we see. Creations are the things that we see and say, man, there's something behind that. There has to be a creator. There has to be someone who knows how to design. There's something bigger. And it's God. He's revealing himself to us. And even at the apex of his creation, right? We can look at the stars. We can look at the moon and the galaxies. And we we can look at many things, the mountains and the oceans and the waves, uh, turtles, whatever. We can look at at things. But the apex of creation is humanity. When you look at a human, right? And and you look at the the way God has designed a human, it's amazing. Like when doctors study the human body, body, they're they're wowed. They're like, what? We can't can't understand this. It's so complex. People who are married say the same thing to their spouses. I can't understand you. You're so complex in a good way, right? <laughs> Only in good ways. They're, 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 you're complex. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a newborn baby being born, and his dad gets to hold him for the first time. And it's like this beautiful, complex baby, slimy but complex and beautiful. Uh, beautiful baby. Um, there, there was uh, several years ago uh, here in Phoenix, there was um, the Body Works exhibit. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see that. And it was um, cadavers, which are real bodies, which I didn't know. Um, once, you can get, once you can get past that, <laughs> once you get past that and you realize, okay, weird. Um, you look at just certain things. They would have a, bo- uh, a body that would be walking upstairs. And they would have a description of what's happening in the brain and so forth just for someone to walk up a flight of stairs. And it was amazing. Like it screams of a creator. This can't just be random chance. It just can't just, just make, that just didn't come out of a bowl of soup, right? I mean, this, this is something that someone had to create. Imagine what the creator is like. God's saying he revealed himself through creation. Second part is common grace. And common grace was actually, that, that term was, was coined by a man by the name of Augustine who lived in A.D. 350 to 400, just around the same time some of you were born, right? And so this, this particular, uh, Augustine said it's common grace. Grace is a theological term for God's unmerited favor, and he put common to it, meaning it's for everybody. I mean, everyone experiences this. This is different than saving grace. 
in which we know Jesus. Everyone doesn't experience that. Everyone doesn't walk in that. Hence why we're talking about this now. Common grace is the last breath you just took. Common grace is a beauty that you can enjoy. Common grace lets us know that every single person in this world is creating the image of God. We are co-bearers. Therefore, even those who despise God are able to advance in research in areas like technology and science and education and sports and arts and politics. It's amazing. Common grace lets us know that even though our neighbors who may not believe in Jesus can, can live seemingly moral lives and raise good kids and have a good marriage, lets us know that God and his common grace is not allowing this world to be as bad as it could be. And so it's common. It's common grace. And the third way that God reveals himself in general revelation is conscience. Every single man and every single woman has a conscience. Some of us have numbed our conscience and seared it, but we have a conscience. It's the reason why when people go into these uh, unreached people groups and they go into different jungles and they reach people, that there are certain things that are universal. Like, you know what? It's still not right to murder people. It's still not right to steal another man's wife. That they, they find these things with a conscience, and we, we, we all have a conscience. And, and again, if, even if you're not a believer in Christ, like you have a conscience. There's certain things that you've done, or maybe you're doing, and you go, dang it, something that didn't sit well with me. You know, then I woke up the next morning, or after I did that, it, it, it didn't sit well. And C.S. Lewis says it's not just foreign ethics that, that, that cause us to, to be guilty, but it's our own conscience. And that's what Paul is saying. Not only is God's wrath present, but we're the object because we are suppressing this truth. And it says this, that we are, we are, so we are without excuse. And then he goes on when he says, not only are we without excuse, which is, that's a judicial term. If you look at the very end of verse 20, it means that standing before the judge. And it's the only time that um, God's wrath is mentioned is in judicial ways. And all that means is God's wrath is somewhat of a secondary attribute. And, and um, what that means is you can say God is love, but it wouldn't be right to say God is wrath. Because God is love means that whether you are a sinner or not, God loves you. Um, God is wrath. God only executes wrath wrath when when there's sin, meaning he has to because he's holy. And so it is an attribute, but it's somewhat of a secondary attribute. And so if someone's guilty of something in a courtroom, we realize that they're guilty. And so there's going to be judgment upon them. And so God is just and he's holy. And so therefore he's going to bring about judgment And, and because he loves his creation. He loves it. And what Paul is saying is, is we, we, we ravaged it. We, as humanity, we, we, we just ravaged it. We don't, we don't like it. Um, we, 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 we use it. We abuse it. His order, his beauty, all those things. And he says, so when you stand before God, every single one of us will stand before God and we'll give an account of our lives. And he says, in that, you, you, you have no excuse. That though general revelation that it cannot by itself lead you to salvation it could lead you to a point to go, then where are you, God? Reveal yourself to me. And which he does through the work of his son, Jesus. And Paul begins a list of few things that are kind of um, just a downturn from this. Not only without excuse, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking, meaning now their thinking's twisted. That they don't just naturally think thoughts of God. That, that we as human beings, that we don't naturally come into this world thinking thoughts of God and how good God is. I mean, those are not usually children's first words. They come on, Lord, you're so good and gracious and holy. I can't believe you sent your son to live the life that I should live. In. I mean, that, that's not what kids do. And in fact, most kids, their first word is no. And it's usually with anger, too. It's like no. And then the second word is no. And it's like, it's still no, bro. Like, I mean, it's just no. That's that, that, like our hearts, they're, they're, they're twisted now. And so what Paul is saying is our thinking is off. It's off. Meaning it does, not, it does not direct towards um, the presence and the holiness of who God is. 
He says, that's not it. Not only has our thinking become futile, it says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's saying that there are very, very smart intellectual people in this room and in this world who do not love Jesus. Very intelligent. Many of them are your professors, they're your neighbors, your friends. And then when you talk to them, and if you're not as intellectual as them, they can make an argument that seems to be something like, ah, that makes sense. And, and, and usually if you talk to somebody else, which we do have Christians as well who are equally as intelligent, would say, no, that falls in itself. Um, that, that, that falls in itself, even that idea. I remember when I was working at ASU, um, my coworkers used to say, Ricardo, there's no such things as absolutes. And I used to always say, are you absolutely sure about that? Just need to know. Right? Like, that's a, tr- that's a truth claim in itself. And so there, there, is a, there is a part of apologetics that we as Christians, we do need to, to learn. And that's how to defend our faith. But he says, but when this happens, you're foolish. You think you're wise, but you're fools. I'm not saying you're idiots. He's not saying that you're dumb. In fact, many of you are really, 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 really smart. But when it comes to spiritual things, you're foolish. Now, there's an inverse to this. When they hear us talk, when our friends hear us talk, we sound foolish. Right? It's like, you ever talk to someone and have them repeat back to you what you just shared and, 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 and realize like how foolish it sounds to them? Why Paul can also say in Corinthians that it's foolishness to the Greeks, right? You say, okay, let me get this back. Let me repeat this back to Ricardo. You believe in this man, Jesus. He came to the world. He said he was the son of God. A Palestinian man lived for about 30, 33 years. Uh, went to the cross as the king and then died. Came back three days later. Hung out with some people. Ate a fish. Went to heaven. And now he's coming back and you're just waiting for him? <laughs> yeah. I do, right? Like that, that, that seems foolish to them. But to, as Paul says, but to those who believe, it's the wisdom and it's the power of God. It, it, it's more than that. And so Paul is saying that, that what sin has done now is not only is our thinking futile, not only are our hearts dark, and he says, but even now we claim to be wise, we became fools. Now here's like the biggest issue of them all. Why were the objects? This is the one thing that the first commandment says, don't put any other gods before me. God says, just don't, don't put any other gods before me. Don't worship, worship any other gods. And Paul says this, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That we, we traded the, the, the glory of God. That, that word glory is special. The word, the word glory means weight or importance. That God is weightier than us. That he's not a concept. He is a reality. And what we're saying is, no thank you. We're trading it for creepy things. Paul, Paul, Paul is saying, you traded it. That's what happens. Every single person, we will worship something. Hear me. Every single person in this room was made to worship something outside of themselves. That you were created to find meaning, you were created to find value and purpose and guidance and direction and instruction outside of yourselves. But if you don't find that in God, it will take you somewhere else. It will take you on a path that has an end that is destructive. Paul says that's what's happening. And every single person who receives wrath, hear me on this, they choose it. They choose it. Because you worship other things. Now, the modern American ears, we hear that and go, Ricardo, I've never carved out an animal. I don't know anybody who's carved out an animal or a creepy thing, place it in their house, and then start bowing down and worshiping. I'm not sure where you're from. You said you're in some part of California. Maybe that happens there, right? I get it. And, and in this culture, they did do that. They did do it. In some cultures in our world now, they still do that. But just because we're not carving things out, we may not have physical idols. 
But all of us, Christian and non-Christian, we worship something other than God. Last week, we talked about human approval. Some people, you worship human approval. It's the praise of people, the fear of their rejection. Some people, it's power. Some people, it's control. Like, you, you just, you have to be in control and you live for it. Some people, it's comfort. Man, um, we can spend a whole, a whole sermon just talking about comfort and its effects when it's not comfort from the Lord. In fact, what I would say, our generation, our, our congregation, we take a little bit of comfort and human approval, and that's our idol together. It's what people say, what people think. I don't want to lose it. We idolize friendship. Friendship is biblical and healthy. But when you take friendship and you put it here, and especially when it's not no longer biblical, it becomes the main thing, it becomes unhealthy. Relationships, especially with the opposite sex, beautiful. God's design, but when it's elevated, even in marriage, it becomes the main thing. And so we try to find comfort with the things we buy, um, the things people can say to us, um, our, just um, our sexual perversion, whatever it may be. We, we, we look for it in these ways. And we numb ourselves constantly on our cell phones, on our Facebook, on our Twitter, on TV. We are constantly numbing ourselves because we desire comfort. And God promises to be that comforter, but we go, no, no, become white noise. And the backdrop of my life. Let me do what I want to do, God. And so Paul says, this is the presence. This, this act of wrath is happening now. God is revealing, revealing it from heaven. The object says, you and me, it's humanity. The wrath of God hangs over our head. And then Paul says, that here's the result. These may be some of the scariest words in the book of Romans. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity of to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Some of the scariest words in scripture, the worst thing that God can do for you, the worst thing that God can do for me is verse 24 when it says, therefore God gave them up. Just that God gave them up. It's not that just, it's just saying, it's not God saying now you wanted to live this way, go live it. It's God saying you're already living that way. And you don't want to stop, do what you want to do. Like the scariest form of wrath currently right now is that God would let you be who you would naturally be apart from his sovereign divine intervention. This is the scariest thing. Some of us in this room who are Christians, all we have to do is look back at our life and see when God intervened and go, man, if he wouldn't have intervened there, because some of our lives are very, very destructive. The scary part is some of you, you don't, you're not doing particular sins that are destructive to your life, and you're going, well, you know what? I'm not doing these things. I'm going to be okay. It's equally as scary. And, and I, I know some of us, when we think of wrath, we're only thinking of fire and brimstone. Please talk about fire and brimstone. This is scarier because it ends in that. Like there, there's, there's a result to this. Um, that if you continue to reject God and to reject his beauty and to reject this, this relationship that you were created to have um, with him, to love him, to know him, to be known by him, to, to share in him, um, and, and you reject his son Christ who he sends to redeem all things. I mean, if, if you continue to live this life, Paul says, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen. Um, what happens is he gives you up to the impurity of your, your heart. So what that means is the lust of your heart, the desires, whatever you want to do. That, that word epithemia there just means strong desires. What do you want to do, God says? Then go ahead just keep doing it, right? If you want to continue to look after number one, if you want to continue to make up your own rules and say, don't come down to me with these scripture, these biblical truths that you could, no, I'm going to do my thing. God says, okay, okay. And you, you ask for it, go ahead. And, and the result of this is not good. 
Verse 25 says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Um, that exchanging of the truth, that what, that's not just a one-time decision. That's ongoing. Every single time you and I sin, every, at any given moment when we sin, what we, are, what we are doing in that moment is we're saying, God, you're not enough. Your ways are not enough, and I'm going to choose my own way. And that's a lie. We see this in the first sin with Adam and Eve. When the serpent began to talk to Eve, she said, now, did God really say? I mean, he doesn't really want you to do that. And what, what, what he's doing is he's sowing seeds of doubt in her to question God. Is God really good and can he be trusted? Because those are the questions we have. Are his ways really good when we look at this? Are his ways, do we, will, are they good? Is he really good? Can he be trusted? And then what happens is we believe the lie and we exchange it for, uh, we believe the lie and we exchange it for the truth of who God is and we live our own way, every single one of us. All of us. No one's exempt in this. Paul says, if you continue to live this life, Jesus says, if you continue this life, the Bible says, if you continue to live this life, it's not going to be pretty. Um, Paul right now is talking about the presence wrath, the present wrath that's being revealed. But when you continue to read the Bible, and Jesus talks about it actually more. In fact, I think there's 600 passages on God's wrath or anger. Um, that it ends up that those who continue to re- reject God, they end up in a place called hell where they will spend all of eternity. I know that it's hard teaching, but it's biblical, it's truth, and we're going to teach it. Um, by no means is this to scare you. It's just to say, here's what, this is what even Jesus said. In fact, when Jesus begins to talk about those who, who in this life will say no thank you to him, and they choose hell, listen, it's not a loving God just sending people to hell. It, 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 it's people. It's like you and I saying, no thank you. I will do my own thing. It's why C.S. Lewis says there are people at the end, at the end who will, those in this life who said, thy will be done, that God will receive into his kingdom. And those in this life said, my will be done, God would say, exactly. You have it. And Jesus describes this place of hell. He calls it Gehenna, Gehenna, which was a literal place where people would, outside of Jerusalem, where people would go and take their trash. And the imagery that he gives there, it's, it's, it's horrible, right? It talks about just a dissolution of personality, that, that you are just losing yourself and your personality that was made by God. God made your personality unique, different than mine. It's, it's amazing, but it goes away because you have a condemned conscience. Another picture that he gives talks about the agonizing um, awareness that you've displeased a holy God. And we, we can understand that on a, on a human level because we know what it's like to fail somebody. We know what it's like to tell people we're going to be somewhere that we don't show up or we're going to provide something for them that we don't come through with and we let them down. Or worse, we make vows to be with someone for the rest of our lives and then we walk away. We understand what it means to disappoint someone. And you're going to have that for all eternity. And you're going to be aware of it. It's an agonizing awareness. Jesus also mentions that there's just a loss of God. You've heard people say this before, that for those who never believe in Jesus, this is the closest to heaven they'll ever get. Because there is a presence of God here. We talked about common grace earlier, that you can enjoy certain things. When, when, When you continue to reject and walk away from God, there will not be the presence or understanding of God in a way that brings delight in hell. And not just loss of God, but a loss of everything good. See, some of us, because we really don't understand the Bible, um, we, we were raised and someone told us that the Bible said not to do certain things or to do certain things. And all the things that we were told that the Bible told us not to do, we thought were really fun. And so somehow we think, dude, hell's going to be amazing, right? Because isn't hell going to be like all the things we couldn't do, right? So there's going to be a lot of drinking there, a lot of smoking, the smurfs are going to be there. Like whatever, like whatever we were told to not watch or do, like it's going to be there. No, 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 no. Hell's not going to be like that. 
all of those things, um, they were good things that God created good. Sin, like a parasite, just leached itself on it and twisted and distorted it. God's going to redeem all those things, and they will be with him where he's at in the flourishing as he restores his kingdom. But the last imagery that Jesus gives is, is the gnashing of teeth, and you've heard that. And that is just self-condemnation, to know for all eternity that you rejected God. To know God, to see him on that judgment date, and to know that you rejected him. Okay, so that's the result. That's one result of God's wrath. And Paul is trying to say, to diagnose this, it's bad. It's like really bad. And, and, and if you're in Romans 1, turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul gives a picture here. Um, I'm going to read all these verses, 9 through 18, um, and, and talking about how bleak our position is and how, how, how impossible it is for us to make things right. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of abscess under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their path, paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's just saying, this is, this is how bad it is. And so, going back to our question, um, how can a loving God bring about wrath? Or how can a loving God send people to hell? Here's a question we should, we, hopefully we've understood that he, he could do that because he loves and because he's holy. The question we should ask is, how can a holy, given the situation that we are in, as Paul says here biblically, how can a loving God and a holy God save sinners like us? How, how, how could we escape this, this righteous indignation of God towards sin? And, and that's, the, that's the beauty of the gospel. As Paul says this, if you, if you could turn just one page in chapter 5, verse 9, he begins to talk about our only way. He, he paints this picture that it's completely impossible in ourselves. But God, this same God who created, the same God who brings wrath, is the same God who sent his son. And he says this in verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the, from the wrath of God. Um, this, he says by the blood. Like he says this wrath is coming, but it's only by the blood. Listen, I, I don't normally share this, um, one, because it's, it's just a weird deal. But before I became a Christian, about six months before this, um, I would have these dreams about, for about six months to eight months. And the dream was terrible. It was the clouds and thundering clouds. And then there would be a lamb that would come out of these clouds. And, and, and lightning bolts would come out of this lamb's mouth. And I'd wake up and go, I don't want to go back to sleep. And this would happen like every night. And the question used to come up in me all the time. And, and you probably had that question of, what happened if I died tonight? Like, where would I go? And, and this is not my, my evangelistic uh, uh, tool here to try to trick you. This is just what was going on with me. Like, what happens if I, if I die tonight? And, and then it freaked me out. I mean, I knew something of the Bible, and I knew maybe there was thunder and clouds and whatnot. Now, just to let you know, when I start reading the Bible, I realize it had nothing to do with the lamb coming out with, um, there's a lamb, um, but not with lightning bolts coming out of his mouth. But it, it was scary to me, and it laid heavy upon me. And it was only when I understood the, that we were justified by the blood of Christ that it made sense and it went away only by the blood of Christ. Um, Paul says this too. Um, um, verses, come back to chapter 3, verses 20, uh, 
23 to 25, it says, chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Um, that word propitiation, we, we talked about it in week one. Many translations, they don't use that word. I'm telling you, there is an, that is an important word for our conversation. Because every single person in this room, we said, born in this world by nature, by choice, with the wrath of God hovering over us. When Paul says this, and John also says it, that Jesus' blood, now in his blood he becomes a propitiation, that word means that God in Jesus satisfied his wrath. Meaning it was through the blood of Jesus, it was Jesus himself being crushed on our behalf that a loving God provided a way that he would continue to shed his love on people for eternity, forever, and still be holy and still be just by only taking his wrath for the people who would believe in him and place it solely and directly on his son and crush him that his blood would be shed. And so that means every single ounce of wrath, God in Christ propitiated, he satisfied And so the righteous indignation of God, this wrath that we were all born into, is no more because of faith in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful news of the gospel. In fact, when people say, why why teach wrath? To me, why not? In fact, if we peddle with wrath, we miss the gospel. Like, no one's getting saved. No one really knows Jesus. Here's why. If you don't understand the weight of your sin and God's hatred toward your sin and that he's not naturally okay with you, the cross seems trivial doesn't matter yeah so a guy came and died on the cross for my sin i'm not that bad put an ice pack on him go out there and play but when you understand that we are by nature and by choice we are not natural born children of god and to the extent that he went to pour forth his to give forth his son to pour forth his blood for us the blood of christ becomes something that's significant and so we should never teach God's wrath with, with, with some sort of just flippancy that, that maybe scare people into the kingdom. No, nor should we ever peddle it and just, just not talk about it because of what it makes us seem like. Because it's not about us. As J.I. Packer says, the only thing that stands between us as sinful people and the thundering clouds of the thunder above us is none other than the cross of Christ. When we see Jesus on the cross and we understand God's wrath, we know he loves us. He loves us. And there's no other way. He loves me. He loves you. And he's, he's, he's gone through the impossible for us to make it possible that we may be right with him, to know him. And so everything that Paul has just said, he goes, not for you anymore, by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? The, the, the result is destruction. However, in the sovereign mercy and grace of God, sometimes he will allow his people to live, to, to, to reveal a particular amount of his wrath and allow them to live, to make a mess out of their life until he gets their attention. And in that, we are thankful. We're thankful not because of the mess that we've made out of our life, because of the mess that he made out of Christ to redeem us. That, that is central to our thinking and our understanding of why we live and why we exist, is that God is holy, he's good, he's savior, he is lover, he is just and justifier, and that's why we sing praises to his son, Jesus. Let's pray.